Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Thursday, the 9th of December, and that means that we are in Luke chapter 9 today. Where in the Word are you today? I'd love to invite you to join us in Luke chapter 9. Um, in here, um, part of what is, is discussed is the cost of following Jesus. And so at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is sending out the 12, and we have the confession of Peter, and I talked about that in the first hour. When we walked around a little bit in those verses. Um, Jesus faces some significant opposition in this, in this chapter as well. And then we come to the final few verses of chapter 9, and it says, as they were walking along the road, which just pause there for a moment and consider what it was like to just walk along the road with Jesus. Like, knowing what we know now, I mean, I am filled with all kinds of like, well, why didn't you ask him this? Well, why didn't you ask him this? But they were just walking along the road. And so, you know, this is, this is a guy they're walking around with, right? All right. So as they are walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, this is the person who made all that is. This is the creator of all things. This is the God of the universe incarnate. And he is acknowledging that by worldly standards, he doesn't have a home. He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, um, first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this is, as they would say at the time, a hard teaching. This is a difficult teaching. There's a lot going on here. Um, And so, you know, I think that when, when there are those who come to Jesus and try to come, you know, sort of like, by their own agenda or according to their own plan, you know, have fit Jesus in to the schedule or fit Jesus in um, to the, the worldview, uh, you know, have Jesus sort of come along or follow them. That is just really, really different than following Jesus and putting him first and everything in life being secondary to him. So I think that's an important consideration as we look toward Christmas and how we're going to celebrate it. Um, if Jesus is just an addendum to your Christmas plans, you're doing it wrong. If Jesus is just an addendum, you know, kind of an afterthought. You know, we're going to slide him in on Christmas Eve, but then we will slide him right back out. If that's the way you're thinking about Christmas, you're doing it wrong. He came to save the world, including you. And so we need to consider um, the Christ and who he really is and why he came and what that means. 
This is Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. I am in studio today with my friend and colleague, Peter Kapsner. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. It's so fun to be in studio with you this morning. It's so fun. And my wonderful and excellent dear friend, brother oh, in Christ, shucks. producer, who, who during the last hour brought a new Christmas hymn to me that I was not aware of and I'm going to now want to hear over and over again. His name is Paul Perot. Good morning. Paul, what was the name of that song? O Come o- All You Unfaithful. By Sovereign Grace. By Sovereign Grace. Ah. They released it last year. I've never heard of that. Yeah, oh. we're going to find a way to work it in again during this hour. Then, I love that. Because it was amazing. I love that. Totally amazing. All right. We'll be, uh, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. indicates that we must be talking next with Dr. Peter Kapsner. This, hey, hey. That is that sort of brooding Scottish music. I love it. I, I know, love but it music. was interesting watching the, the hand thing she's yeah. doing with the song. I mean, oh, you don't I get thought, to see this no, I know. when she's I, working at her home it's studio. It's really true. I've never seen her dance before like there that. Is a, there yeah. are dance moves related to almost everyone's walk-up song. <laughs> well, we, well we, I saw mine. <laughs> I know, and you've so. seen yours. Yours is like a punching motion. It was. It was. It was I, pretty exciting. Like, all pumped up I now. feel like your song is a little punchy. Yeah, so there is. you go. It is indeed. Um, all right. So, Dr. Peter Kapsler, we have some things to talk about today. Um, expectations of pastors in ministry. I'd mm. like to start here this morning. You would. Yeah. Um, I would be surprised... No, this would never happen. This is sort of falls into the category of this would never happen if this were my pastor. And so I think this is part of the challenge. Like we have some expectations of the way pastors are going to behave, what their life is going to look like. Um, I guess I need to ask, are those cultural expectations or mm. are there some biblical expectations of pastoral leadership that would have pre- that would have prevented a pastor from um, participating as a drag queen mm. In an HBO um, docu series where he is dressing up as a woman and in the pulpit as if he is preaching. Yeah, you frame that in a really interesting way in terms of trying to delineate between cultural expectations and biblical expectations. And and I think there's plenty of pastors in in known and unknown ways are feeling like they sort of need to acquiesce to the cultural expectations. And, and the reason why I say that, Carmen, is there's so much pressure to be perceived as relevant according to the cultural norms of the day in which you can draw more eyeballs than other ministries or, or you can try to hit the felt needs, I suppose, that are perceived among the people. And so uh, ministry is constantly trying to evolve and adapt in order to to somehow look like the culture of the day, because then they believe that if that if they can do that, they're going to get more eyeballs, they're going to get more people in the seats, there's going to be better finances, and all of this stuff when when church starts masquerading or business starts masquerading as a church. On the flip side of it, the biblical expectations are incredibly clear about those people who ever want to be shepherds in God's kingdom, and and it, it involves first and foremost humility. It, it involves uh, having a deep and profound and authentic care for the wholeness of the people that are that that you are shepherding that you, you, yeah. you just you give of yourself for other people i i remember when i was in pastoral ministry and i was confronted pretty clearly by god at certain times saying hang on a minute, Kapsner, you're speaking in front of all of these bazillions of people or whatever in the weekend. It might actually be helpful if you maybe cared about them. 
I was like, yeah, you know, God, that might, and that took me on a pretty significant journey that required something entirely different than maybe building my brand or trying to build bigger, you know, bigger ministries and all that. So, so the biblical expectations are very different than cultural, but this is a great example of somebody who is moving within the cultural yeah, so norms of the day. Because you know what we're talking about and people listening don't quite yet know what we're talking about. So there's yeah, yeah. a uh, United Methodist pastor in Indiana who um, participated, appeared in drag in HBO's We're Here. Um, and the um, the way that the media is covering it in most places is that he's now been, quote, forced out of his church. That That's actually not the storyline. Um, you know, I think that he beca- was made aware by members of his congregation that um, this is— this is regarded as inappropriate and hurtful to the church. And I recognize that this individual was seeking to raise awareness in his community of the LGBTQI. It's a very long, actually, there's more letters that are listed in this one. Yeah. And it generally is about 140 to 50 now, I believe. I'm just saying like, it's a very long, it's, and they try to embrace many of those in the reporting on this. Um, But I felt like, you know, they were highlighting the fact that, well, he didn't do anything that was actually contrary to what the standards of the United Methodist Church, you know, lay out in their rules of discipline. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there's no way you could make the list of all the things we're not supposed to do. It's impossible because that list would be constantly ever expanding. I mean, who who would have ever thought at a denominational meeting, hey, in our standards of behavior, we need to include in there (laughs) that pastors can't you know, present in drag in the pulpits of our churches and and, you know, and men men can't be presenting as women. It this is a it, this isn't even a, con- a conversation about it's, transgenderism it's because this is a conversation about drag. I mean, like it's a anyway, it's complex and and messy. Here's what I would like for us as Christians to be thinking about. What are the biblical expectations of pastors? What are God's expectations of those who would um, take on the mantle of responsibility as under shepherds of Jesus Christ for the church, the bride of Christ, who's going to be presented holy and pure, holy and pure? Is this, does this rise to the standard of holy and pure? And should we be talking more about what pastors um, should be doing and and maybe then everybody would understand the very, very long list of things then that you should not be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Carmen, that is the question. And and when you... I can't make, I can't make the don't do list. You can't. But, you can't. but if you focus on that, which is authentic and yeah, real and exactly. the invitation and the call, <clears throat> then the other stuff starts falling away really, really quickly. But I think... Um, we we need to get back to so many of those kinds of things. I was talking with my students yesterday. You and I were talking off the air, I think, yesterday, just about the kinds of things we learned in seminary. I love my seminary experience. I love teaching in seminary. I love what's possible there. But again, so often the training and equipping of leaders in seminary are not necessarily the character development, the character traits needed in order to, to shepherd. And, that, and that, those character traits don't come easy. You can't just do a quiz about them. There, there is a kind of discipleship journey in which we're invited. And it actually relates a lot to what you read at the top of the hour from Luke chapter 9. If we take it seriously, that the Son of Man, the, the Word made flesh, the one who created the universe, when he came to this world, he didn't have a place to lay his head. He wasn't trying to create some big ministry associated uh, with, with what he was doing, he saw himself as somebody that needed to walk in humility and walk in love and, and not be fussed by the things going on in the world. And he just had a steadiness, obviously, but he didn't pretend to try to take his gifts and then make a name for himself in the midst of all of that. He just came to serve. And and those kinds of things you cannot learn in seminary. You, you have to have them developed in different kinds of contexts. 
All right, we're talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're going to talk about a range of topics. We're going to turn um, next to the mental health crisis uh, of young people in this country. The Surgeon General of the United States issued a rare public health advisory a couple of days ago on the mental health challenges that we're confronting uh, here in the country re- related to our young people. Um, Peter and I are going to talk about that, but as we, um, you know, as we prepare for that conversation, let me just encourage you to consider for a moment the young people who you know and how they might be suffering from depression or anxiety, um, and then what our role as Christian brothers and sisters might be entering in as light and people of hope. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Go tell it on the mountain. Well, good morning again. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Uh, I am in studio with Peter Kapsner and Paul Perot, two of my favorite guys. Oh, I just yeah. want to note again at the top of the hour, you introduced me as your dear friend, but but you said very dear related to Paul Perot. I've, I've been feeling insecure these Dude, last 11 like minutes, Carmen. you're like once a week, and I rely on him That's in true. ways in every single day yeah, in you ways that you me. cannot imagine. <laughs> you're not wrong. So, you're 100% not yeah, wrong. Yeah. yeah. Paul is, yeah. yeah. There's not enough superlative are... <laughs> adjectives to describe him. I oh, agree with goodness. you 100%. Special gems in the crown in heaven for I that just, guy. It's, it's, I think I should just leave you for <laughs> he is extraordinary. He's that amazing. Is. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. Who he could give a master class in producing he, a radio show. He could give a master class. To. Yes, he indeed Except could. who would want to watch sausage being made? Mm-hmm. Apparently mm-hmm. some people do. People <laughs> like to know about process. Um uh, okay, so I learned during the break something that I didn't know because I've been busy and not paying attention to maybe all of the top yeah, stories. Yeah, you've been on share, what, I think it's, maybe 47 hours, hours in the last and week. And yeah. so yeah, I, yeah. Missed, I missed that Hillary Clinton had announced her master class and that she did so by reading her what would have been acceptance speech had she won. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, the fact that she gets a master class... I might be a little jealous of because I might I might want to have a master class. <laughs> well, what would but your I don't master know what class it would be? be in. Yeah, well, you okay, need to think about that. My master class would be my okay. If I had a master class, what would it be? Muffins. The, those no, applesauce no, muffins. I do right? think, Redemption muffins. I do think it would be my master class would be in how do you how do you get everything done that you perceive needs to get done in the amount of time that other people seem to get nothing done. I love that so, idea. I don't know, you, there would be like a lot of people that would sign up for that. Crazy Some, some. Yeah. It would just. I mean, because it would be a day in the life. My master class <laughs> would just be wandering around a day in the life kind of thing. But I get a lot done. I mean, my husband says, like, you you get more done. Yeah. In while you're making a meal, than most people get done all day. But that's because you know, if you're waiting for water to boil, you're not standing there waiting for water to boil. You're going and you're doing the laundry. <laughs> Even that's helpful. Or you're Even doing the dishes. Or you're you know feeding the dog. I mean, like, there's so many yeah. things that you could do in the time that it takes to you know wait on something else to happen are people standing around waiting on these things to happen this is my this is my so, question so here's before you go back to tennessee i'm gonna buy you a gopro that you have to mount on your head <laughs> and then i'm gonna live stream you for a week and just and oh. we'll just we'll just see how much you get done in that week that there would be a lot of eyeballs on that youtube channel well the first day back is going to be all the things that were on the list that i'm pretty sure did not get done while i was gone i bet that's true because all of those things have to happen like on saturday yeah 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 i, I mean i do know they got the tree but I guarantee okay. you, it's not decorated. Yeah, I'm which sure is not. Okay. Yeah, no, Hallie's out of town right now too, and I'm going to try to get that tree tonight. But it's not going to be decorated. Do you know? Sure. So, do you know why at my house the tree's not decorated? No, <clears throat> because no one made the cookies, and they think that there is this like <laughs> some sort of religious connection. Oh, I can you sympathize can't with that. Actually, like there's like six varieties of cookies that are necessary yeah. to be on the decorating 
table with all of the decorating stuff. I'm on that team. I'm on that team 100%. On the tree. Like, yeah. like it's they're like, well, this is required. Okay. <laughs> We're supposed to be talking about something else. Right. Um Mental health in young people. Mm, that was okay. quite the headline, wasn't it? I'm so even? sorry. There this was is quite such a, few... a serious topic. Yeah, too. but those stats were troubling. You, I mean, I know you have them in front of you. So I do. So um, the on Tuesday, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a rare public health advisory on mental health challenges confronting young people in the United States. So here are some of those stats. Symptoms of depression and anxiety have doubled during the pandemic. 25% of young people are experiencing depressive mm-hmm. symptoms. 20%, so that's one in five, are experiencing anxiety. Um, there appears to be uh, a rise in not only negative emotions, but behaviors related to impulsivity, irritability, self-harm, um, and everything from attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity to, yeah, to mm. suicide. Yep. So um, talk with us about what you are experiencing you know, with students, obviously not specifically, but, you know, sure. in general, what you're experiencing in students and, and, you know, with other kids, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of understandable hand wringing going on right now about the impact of COVID lockdowns on mental health. And, and I think there is a connection there. There clearly is a connection. But I think we have to be careful <clears throat> to not suggest that that was the origin that is simply just exacerbating what has been about a 15-year trend in mental health among young people. And, and all it's doing is just pouring some more gas on that fire that's there. And so the the origin, insofar as I would understand it, and having experienced it in the classroom, it was about 2006. And, and I've been teaching in university classrooms since around 2002. That in 2006, something shifted in my classes. And I've talked about this on your on your show before. But what shifted is that if I had 100 or 150 students per semester, 2002, 3, 4, 5, I might have had one or two that came to me and said, Capsner, I really need some accommodations for my mental health, however that expressed itself. And, and it was easy to accommodate and kind of help them on the journey. 2006, 7, 8, that exploded. It, it went from uh, maybe 1 to 10 to 20 to 50 to at most recent check, when I check, when I just do sort of an anecdotal check-in with my class, how are you experiencing life in the ways that you just described statistically? Most of them will raise their hand and say, yeah, this is very familiar turf for me at this point. And you can, you can trace um, that rise of anxiety and turmoil, the beginnings of it, the origins of it, to the social media stuff. And, and mm. I know it's really easy to just sort of bash on social media and everything, but there is a one-to-one relationship <clears throat> with the amount of time that we're spending on our electronic devices not just what they do to us physiologically, because they do just being on a device does something to us physiologically, but then the kind of information that comes through those devices, it just wreaks havoc on us. It, it, there's information flowing into our brains all day long, and sometimes that information, especially in places like Instagram and other social media sites, is going to be really hard on the soul on top of it. So what do you do? I, you know, that, that would be you and I maybe need like a 24-hour telethon <laughs> to just sort of walk through this issue of what do you do. But one of the things I was thinking about this morning is as somebody who loves Oreo cookies, and, and I can pound through five double stuffs without even a thought in a, bit, in a big glass of milk, right? Like if I did that, Carmen, uh, for let's say a year straight, 365 days, I crushed somewhere between 1,900 cookies or something, and I got done in that time, and my waistline has grown substantially. My, my metabolism has turned to paper mache, and, and um, I've got brain fog and all sorts of stuff. I'd be like, 
gosh, what is wrong? Carmen, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me around my brain fog? I would hope you would come to me and say, Kapsner, mm. stop eating the five Oreos per day. Mm. And and so there's there's has to be some sort of move beyond the understandable impulse to want to pray for our young people. We do. But I think we do have an invitation that's really substantive that just says, you know what? Let's start figuring out how to begin to wean ourselves up. It's not going to be all at once. Just get down to three Oreos a day. Get down to one for Pete's sake. If we can wean ourselves off the Literally, social media. for Pete's sake. For Pete's sake, indeed. And, and I, the last part about this oh, is I know a young person that's doing that. Could be. That's what it is. For how, Pete's sake. For Pete's sake. And how to get off of Oreo cookies. I, I, I would not get many views, but I only have nine Twitter followers anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I think um, I think... I heard someone um, just yesterday say, you know, the starting point, like you have to start somewhere. So start with actually putting your phone in a different room than the room you sleep in. And that's hard for me. Number number one, for me, put your phone in a different room than the room you sleep in. When you go to bed, go to bed without your phone. Mm. That is a huge step. Buy an alarm clock. And Some people say, exactly. I need it for Some my alarm. I'm like, there, like, are there are such things as alarm, alarm clocks. clocks. That's exactly right. Yeah, indeed. All right. So um, so there you go. That's where we're going to start today. Um, let's, let's at meals, no phones at meals. I love that tip. No phones at, you know, when you're, that, this would be the starting place. At least you get a good night's sleep, and at least you would learn to have fellowship around a table. Indeed. Like, those might just be the starting place. I love that idea, Carmen. All right. We got to leave it right there because we got to take a break for Breakpoint. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. He's actually going to host the show tomorrow so that I can go attend a funeral in Texas. So yeah, thank you I'm in advance that. for that, my for brother. Sure, for sure. Um, we'll be right back. All right, when you think about the evidence for Jesus, when you think about Jesus as a person of interest, what turns your head toward Christ? Um, So we could talk there about the manger. We could talk about the cross. What if you had to only look at evidence outside of the Bible? Do you even know where you would start looking? So imagine a scenario in which the New Testament is not available to you. The New Testament is not available to you. What evidence exists from history alone to reconstruct the identity of Jesus? We're going to talk next with Jay Warner Wallace about that. This is Max Lucado. Jesus' earthly father is a small-town carpenter who lives in Nazareth. Now, why Joseph? A major part of the answer lies in his reputation, and he gives it up for Jesus. Nazareth viewed Joseph as we might view an elder, deacon, or Bible class teacher. Now what? His fiance is blemished, tainted. He is righteous, godly. The law says stone her. Love says forgive her. And Joseph is caught in the middle. Then comes the angel's announcement. She carries the Son of God in her womb. But who would believe it? Joseph makes his decision. Joseph took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. He swapped his Torah studies for a pregnant fiance and an illegitimate son and made the big decision of discipleship. He placed God's plan ahead of his own. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know? How would Mary have known? How do we know? How do you know the things that you know about Jesus? Well, many of the things we know, in fact, dare I say most of the things we know about Jesus, we know 
from the record of the New Testament. But let's just imagine for a moment a scenario in which every New Testament document was not available to us for some reason. What evidence exists from history to reconstruct the identity of Jesus? That is the question asked by J. Warner Wallace in Person of Interest. You know him, you know, well, you know J. Warner Wallace anyway, um, and I hope you know Jesus. Uh, Welcome, uh, J. Warner, back to the show. We appreciate you being here. I'm so glad to be with you. You you summarized it perfectly. That's what we're trying to do in Person of Interest for sure. All right. So talk about that. Talk about, um, you know, like what draws us into imagining this scenario. I know it comes out of your history, but, you know, set that up for folks who don't know you well. Well, so I'm a cold case detective and I get a lot of cases, um, I, you know, cases that are difficult because, you know, they weren't solved originally. That's why they were kind of lame to begin with. And then I get them 25 years later and they're not much better by the time I get them. But what we try to do, and I've had several of these that are, are called nobody murders or nobody missings, where somebody's reported missing by a husband who's killed her and then reported that she ran off. And they take a missing person's report. The body is never recovered. She never shows up anywhere. And we don't have any photographs of a crime scene because it wasn't considered a crime at the time. No property ever booked into property. So what do we do with a case like this where you have no information? Well, we always tell the juries that, hey, look, before – if this was a murder instead of a missing, that day that she went missing was a bad day. It was an explosive day. And But all bombs have a fuse that burns slowly toward the detonation of the bomb. And then once it detonates, there's shrapnel and debris everywhere. So what we do in front of juries is we demonstrate what happened on the day of the murder, even though there's no crime scene, by simply looking at the fuse and fallout. Well, the same thing can be done with Jesus. If if you're somebody who doesn't want to read the New Testament, or or if there's some nefarious way in which some future regime could destroy all New Testaments, you would still be stuck with Jesus because of the amazing impact that he has in both the fuse and fallout of history— and what's so powerful about it, I think most of us don't even know the depth to which Jesus has influenced human history and the fact that we can reconstruct the story of Jesus from human history in such a way that you cannot eradicate him from, from history. And, and how do we explain that if he's anything other than who he said he was? And that's really what we're trying to do in Person of Interest. Why is Jesus a person of interest to you, and when did he become a person of interest, and sort of what happened that made him impossible for you to ignore? Well, the the first pastor I ever heard talk about Jesus in a way that was provocative, I was about 35, and uh, I was attending a church with my wife for the very first time. We were not raised in the church. I was not raised in uh, an evangelical setting. So here I'm in this church for the first time, and and, and the pastor was clever enough uh, to say that Jesus was really smart. He said he was the smartest man who ever lived. And I not interested in God, but I was interested in smart. So I bought a Bible just to see the red letters, like what's so provocative about Jesus. That started for me a journey and and, and testing what is in the scripture and what's outside of scripture that makes a case for who Jesus was. And that first part of that journey, I talk about in a book called Cold Case Christianity. That's all the stuff that I discovered in the New Testament. But but part of that investigation for me was, you know, if, if Jesus is who he said he was, There ought to be more impact on culture than just four authors in antiquity who write four Gospels. There ought to be something much more. The the ripple effect ought to be. So right away, I was looking to see if there were any ripples. And sure enough, uh, I just was not educated as a young person to know any impact 
of Christianity on culture and any impact of Jesus on the things that mattered most to me as an atheist, were, which were literature. You know, I was a designer before I, I became a, a detective. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture. I call it architecture, but the point is <laughs> I was working in that field in Santa Monica. So the things that mattered to me as an atheist were literature, uh, art, music, education, science. Well, it turns out those five aspects of, of human culture are standing on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers. And I just had no idea. All right. We're talking with Jay Warner Wallace. The um, The book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And yet we've got copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, I want to talk with you about the fallout and the fuse. And I think I want to do it in that order, because I think you've already sort of teed us up to talk about the fallout or the ripple effect um, literature, art, music, education, science, places where we see evidence in history of how Jesus, um, you know, matters to the reality of life and the world. So let's talk about the fallout, and then we'll talk about the fuse. Okay, so so what I'm looking for are things, and this is uh, the, uh, the, the detective in me uh, typically looks at old cold cases, and, and I know that we've had good detectives working on these cases to begin with, but they're maybe not looking in some of the weird places that I'm going to look um, uh, to find the evidence of, of you know, how this thing ripples out. And so I'm looking in, in historical fallout related to Jesus, not just in those areas where he has a huge impact, because those are important. But I'm looking in those areas to say, hey, okay, there's, okay, he's had a huge impact on literature. No one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. There's no historical figure in the Congress, uh, the Library of Congress, or if you do a simple Google book search, you will find that no one's been written about more than Jesus. But I'm asking the question: What can I know if there was no New Testament from what has been written? Of course, you can know a lot. But even if all you had were the ancient voices in the first 400 years of the Common Era, you'd have enough data to reconstruct the story of Jesus from both hostile sources, sources that are benign, sources that love Jesus but were heretical, and the church fathers. You'd have enough. As a matter of fact, you still see, even in fiction today, a genre of literary fiction that is called Christ figuring or Christ figures, because these are the the, the, the people like Neo in, in The Matrix, uh, uh, all kinds of, of, his, of uh, fictional characters that share the broad overarching outline of the Jesus story. He, he permeates even our fictional accounts. Even most Marvel superheroes are tapping into the Jesus story in one way or another to, to, make a, to, to, to write a character that we resonate with because all of us being created in the image of God are, um, you know, we're image bearers and we recognize that image. But my point is, is that you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. And, and when you find the weird places where you can do it, like in education, I mean, do you realize the top 15 universities in the world today were founded by Christ followers? I know. And if you go to those campuses and you visit the campuses on the most ancient buildings on the campuses, you will find the images, scriptures, etchings of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the campuses of the top universities in the world today. 
Yeah, so you have to destroy those buildings and those campuses to erase Jesus from history. Amazing, amazing way of approaching the conversation, and I think so helpful in these days when we're trying to find, you know, conversational touch points with people in a culture um, who definitely don't want to talk about the Bible. All right, we're talking with Jay Warner, War- Jay Warner Wallace. We have to take a very brief break. The book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. We'll be right back. What child is this? What uh, draws our attention to the person of Jesus this time of year would be all of the things related to Christmas. And so it's a really good time of year to consider Jesus um, and, and to learn as Christians how to talk about Jesus and point to him from sources outside of the New Testament. And so Jay Warner Wallace is here today. Um, we are talking about his book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. We've got copies to give away. If you want to enter the drawing, you text the word book to 877-933-2484. Jay Warner, let's talk about um, specifically science as one of the ripple effect um uh, fallout items, and then I want you to talk about the fuse. Yeah, that that to me, science was one of those more surprising. I, I fear that for our young people who are raised in the church, that we might even abandon our role of leadership that we have historically played in the sciences today. And and I think that this is one of those areas that if you're just not familiar with the advance of science over time, you'll notice if you start charting this, and our book has got 400 illustrations. So a lot of what I'm trying to talk about is hard to visualize. You have to kind of see the charts but and see the diagrams. But, but, but what we looked at was, you know, if you look at the growth of science, you'll see that Jesus stands before that growth curve. He could have easily been a thousand years years before that, in which case science was pretty much just doing a a static uh, increase. But no, when Jesus shows up, something about the worldview initiated by Jesus acts as a catalyst. And I demonstrate this in the book. As a matter of fact, if you look at the people who have founded the major scientific disciplines, which we exercise today from modern chemistry and modern biology, all the way to quantum mechanics and computer sciences, you will find that they are by and large Christ followers. And they wrote about more than just their scientific disciplines. This is all the way from the scientific revolution up before that. I mean, you go all the way to the, to the Middle Ages and all the way into the current generation. And I try to show the list of all the people who are actively working in the sciences today that are Christ followers and their contributions. The people who founded these disciplines are often called the science fathers, father of this, the father of that. Even if they're a woman, they're usually called a father of a discipline and historically. And if you look at the science fathers, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from their personal writings writings, from books they actually write about Jesus, from letters and correspondence that we talk about Jesus. You can even reconstruct a large degree of the scripture from the New Testament. As a matter of fact, you can get more information about Jesus from the personal writings of the science fathers historically than you can from the personal writings of the Antonicene church fathers. That is remarkable if you think about it. You'd have to destroy the history of science because so many of the most critical scientists over the course of history were Christ followers and talked about him, revered him, worshipped him. They did not deny the miraculous, did not deny the resurrection. They found no rub between their scientific explorations and their view of a God who could enter into his creation miraculously. So I think that's part of what we want to do is to look for those weird places that most people think, well, you can't be a, a Christian, you can't be a God, a theist, and, and be a scientist. Well, it turns out that has not historically been the case. 
many uh, the, the vast majority of significant scientists historically have been theists of one stripe or another. All right, I want to talk about the fuse because the way that God um, orchestrated human history to you know what we would call the fullness of time this this mm-hmm. moment during which Jesus arrives on the scene. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is an expression that Paul uses in Galatians, right? That in the fullness of time, that God came into his creation, sent his son. But what does that even mean? Well, it turns out, if you look, we, we always look at this in terms of investigations. Like, why did this woman get killed on that day? Why did it happen then? Almost always, there'll be some relationship between a window of opportunity that was opened up for this particular suspect related to that particular victim. And if we can show the uh, jury that this is the red zone opportunity that matches the victim and our suspect, it makes sense why she died that day. Same thing kind of happens here. You know, there are things that happen in history that open up a window of opportunity. And I try to chart three of them, a spiritual fuse, a cultural fuse, and a prophetic fuse. So for simple things like, you know, the prophecies of the Old Testament in Daniel 9, it seems that Daniel is saying there's a window of opportunity between an edict to restore Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. There's a window there when the Messiah is supposed to show up. That opens a red zone. It's going to be it's right of center, right of, you know, the first century is in that window. But there's also the Pax Romana, culturally, the Roman Empire, the creation of roads and the buildings of roads, of postal services, of, a, of an Etruscan alphabet, a Koine Greek, a spoken language. All these things seem to align to open up that window. So when the Pax Romana, that 200-year period of peace, uh, comes in place, now you've got the roads in place and an environment in place and a, an empire that can spread the message of Jesus across the known world. Even the roads that connect the Silk Road to China, all these roads now are in place, the road, very roads that Paul walks on. So you overlap that window. There's also another window that is all of the ancients who are thinking seriously about God and have imagined a nature of God, the same conversation that Paul has in Acts 15, uh, 17 and Mars Hill, you people are religious. Well, if you wanted to come at that time when the most people who are thinking about the attributes of God are, are actually still worshiping their mythologies, because you're going to come and actually make all of those mythologies a reality. You're going to come and embody all of their, their imagination, embody all of their expectations. That's another window of opportunity. And then you'll see it in the book. I try to draw these out on the timeline. You'll be amazed to see there's a tight window in which all of these overlap from about 29 BC to about 70 AD. And where does Jesus fall? He falls right in that middle third of that 100-year period. And so I think there's, there's, there, when you see it, you realize, oh, this is exactly what, what Paul is talking about when he says that Jesus comes in the fullness of time. And remember that every red zone opportunity is specific to a suspect and a victim in my, my cases. Here, it's just the, 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 the window of opportunity that Jesus offers that I think is the best explanation for why we call the first century the first century. Now think about that. It isn't the first century. <laughs> we just call it that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the first century in human history or the first century ever written about in human history, yet we call it that for a reason, because a red zone opportunity opened up and somebody arrived that changed history forever. Yeah, I, every every year at the you know, start of the new year, I try to have this conversation, you know, because we do call it the year of the Lord. And why do we do that? I mean, you'd have to get rid of the calendar if you were going to get rid of Jesus. 
Yeah, well, even if you do, even if you say, okay, I don't want to call it a, I call it the common era. Well, why are we calling this the common era? What is it? <laughs> because something very uncommon happened, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and if you look at um, the last chapter, all of the people who could have changed history in the first century, these are leaders of empires. These are poets. These are authors. These are spiritual philosophers. None of these people changed the first into the uh, caused the first century. Amen. Instead, it's this nobody who was born in a nowhere town and raised in another nowhere town. This is the guy who, who was chased by the people who had power, who never had any kind of platform from which he could build a, a following, never uh, ruled a nation or led an army, never wrote a book, never had children or a significant family that could continue his legacy. Even the people who loved him eventually abandoned and denied him. And then when he's falsely accused and executed, they have to borrow a grave for this guy. Yet this is the guy. And not all those other world leaders who makes the impact that Jesus makes. None of them are represented on, on, on campuses of education, in the arts, and in music, and in literature, and in science, and even in other non-Christian religions like Jesus of Nazareth. He has that singular impact on human history. How do you explain it, given who he was? Unless, of course, he was who he said he was. Amen. Amen. It's so creative. It's so compelling. The book is Person of Interest. J. Warner Wallace is the author. You can find him. It's just the letter J, jwarnerwallace.com. J. Warner, thank you so much. It's, it's just fantastic. Thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. Merry Christmas. We'll be right Merry back. Merry Christmas to you. All right, we do have books to give away, uh, and I want you to have one. So text the word book to 877-933-2484. Peter Kapsner will be here tomorrow. Thank you so much. Have a great day. God bless. Point somebody to Jesus today, even in the evidence of the culture writ large. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.